Well, hey everyone, glad you're here for week two of this series, Life is a Battlefield. Man, if you missed week one, you missed a lot. We really kind of kicked off the series with a big overview of what we're going to talk about in these three weeks, specifically the idea of spiritual warfare. And so if you have not watched week one, I would highly encourage you to do that. Even if you stop watching this, go watch that and then come back to this later really should watch uh, week one. Uh, But in case you're not, because some of you just aren't, uh, let me give you a kind of summary of what we talked about last week. Really what we're talking about with the idea of spiritual warfare is the reality behind it. And that is, is that there is a very real and active spiritual world that we live and operate in. It's beyond what we see. It's beyond uh, just kind of the everyday normal life that is tangible and physical. It is a spiritual supernatural reality. And this idea of spiritual warfare is that we are constantly at battle there. And one of the things that, you know, we took a lot of time to talk about, which is incredibly important, is just because you're not aware of this reality, just because you're not aware of this battle doesn't mean you're not in it. This battle is something that we are all engaged in. And the reason we miss it so often is because it's very subtle, right? If you've watched horror movies with, you know, demons and possession and all this stuff going on, you may think that spiritual warfare is this big thing that you wouldn't miss if it happened in your life. But the truth is, it's far more subtle than that. And the ways in which we are under attack and the ways in which the enemy works is is very uh, much a part of the everyday moments of our life. Not these big overtures, but these subtle subterfuge that comes and can take us. But don't let the fact that it's subtle uh, keep you from realizing that it's absolutely real. Um, We have a a real uh, call to spiritual warfare, and we have a real enemy that we're called uh, to work against. And so last week, and you can go back again, watch the video, we talked about the enemy is kind of a threefold enemy. It's the world, not the people of the world, but the systems of the world that operate apart from God. Uh, Our flesh, which is the sin nature that indwells each and every one of us, that is naturally pulling us toward our own sinful desires. And then obviously the devil. We believe that Satan is real, that he is active, and that he is working against God and God's people. So this spiritual warfare that we are engaged in is with a very real enemy that kind of presents a cohesive front working against God and the people of God, the world, the flesh, the devil. But then the biggest thing that we talked about last week, and the thing that you've got to hear, you can't miss in this whole series, is not just the reality of the battle, the reality of the enemy. It's the reality of our victory. We stand already in the victory that Jesus has won. This battle is not a 50-50 toss-up. It's not a, we'll see who wins. We don't know how it's going to shake out. No. On the cross, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection from the grave, Jesus has won the victory. He has defeated the devil, he has disarmed the grave, and he has overcome the power and the penalty of sin in our life. And so what spiritual warfare is, is it's the call for each of us to stand in that victory. 
We are not called to go and charge the gates of hell with a super soaker of holy water. We are just simply called to stand in the victory that Jesus has won on our behalf. We saw that last week in Ephesians chapter 6. And what we're going to see as we go on this week is not only have we been given this call to stand, but we have been given the means by which we stand. And so what I mean is, is not only have we been told, okay, you need to stand against the enemy and hold your ground in this battle, but God has graciously given us, we saw this last week, his armor to use in our stand against the enemy. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of press into that a little bit. So we're going to pick up reading in the scriptures where we left off last week, and that's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. So if you got your Bible, go there. Uh, We're going to look at just a few verses together and kind of begin to unpack this idea of the armor of God that he's given us. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 says, For this reason, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So, That passage is the beginning of what we call the armor of God. And it's not just an armor that comes from God. It is God's armor that he has given us so that we might take our stand. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at that armor, really the more defensive pieces of that armor that we've been given, and begin to kind of understand what that means for us as we stand against the enemy. And what we're going to see as we look at these is that each piece of this armor, they all have a historical counterpart that Paul has in mind. They have a passive foundation that is laid for us. They have a practical benefit that we live out. And then there's a way, I think, that we can learn how to put these pieces on. And so what we're going to do is just kind of walk through each of them so we might better understand them. The first thing that we saw with this armor of God is there in verse number 14 when Paul Paul says, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. So when you talk about the armor of God, if you grew up in church, Awana, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, whatever, you talked about the armor of God and this was what's called the belt of truth. Well, when Paul is laying out this armor, as we've already said, he's got a historical counterpart in mind, really basing each part of the armor off of a piece of armor that would have been worn by the typical Roman soldier of his day. Because remember, at this time, Rome really controlled everything in the known world. And so when Paul says the belt of truth, what he has in mind is a kind of leather apron, so to speak, that the Roman soldier would wear under their armor. And the point was, is that back then people weren't walking around in blue jeans and a Columbia shirt. They wore long flowing robes, men and women, right? So this belt, so to speak, would help them to tie up, to secure the robes they were wearing so that as they put on their armor and began to fight, they would be able to fight unencumbered. Uh, Maybe the way that we understand it as a belt is that your belt is not something for you to put a gun holster on more than it is for you 
you to keep your pants up so they don't fall down if you get in a fight, right? So it's that idea of the belt that allows that soldier uh, to fight unencumbered. And so what Paul says is our belt is the belt of truth. And I think obviously he has in mind that part of that is the truth of God's word, right? We believe that God's word, the Bible, is wholly truthful. And more than that, it is authoritative in our life and in our faith. And what Paul is saying here is that the truth of God's word is the underlying constant that holds all we believe together. What we believe, we believe because God has revealed that truth to us in his word. So that truth, that belt, is the constant that holds our faith, that holds our belief together. But I think even more than that, what Paul is really saying here, kind of given the context, is that as believers, we are called to be people of truth. That truth should be a belt we wear around our waist. We are people of truth. We are people of integrity. And this is huge, right? Because when we know the truth of God's word, and when we live as people of integrity, it allows us to stand against deceit, against falsehood, as well as maintain credibility in our witness. So look, you know this, right? You get it. The world is constantly throwing things at you, and many of the things that you hear, many of the things that you see are lies. And if they're not outright lies, they're misleading falsehoods that just simply are not true. So that's why it's so important that we know the truth of God's word so that we can fend off that deceit. But even beyond that, in the active sense, when we live as people of integrity, when we hold truth in high regard, we are able then to gain credibility with outsiders to the faith that then give us a place to share our faith, right? Because here's the thing. We believe some crazy stuff as Christians. We believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he died, and three days later he came back to life. And because of that, we can live with him forever. That doesn't sound crazy to us who believe it, but to somebody who doesn't believe it, that's kind of out there. So it's important that we demonstrate that we're not people who are prone to believe crazy stuff, but that we are people who are committed to the truth. And the reason we believe that about Jesus is because we believe it is true. So then how do we put on this belt of truth? Well, I think that we put on this belt as we read and study God's word, right? Because as we said, this Bible is the revealed truth of God to us. And so we become people of truth and we learn the truth by spending time in God's word. And here's what's so important, right? We can't live the truth out if we don't know it. And we're not going to know it unless we read it. So if we want to be people of truth and put on the belt of truth, it starts with being in God's word. We got to keep moving though. The the second piece here, he he says again in verse 13, um, that you may, uh, verse 14, sorry, says, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. And he says, righteousness like armor on your chest, right? And so this is, 
you know, called popularly called the chest piece of righteousness. And this was a piece of armor that maybe we're most familiar with, right? Because you can get in your mind a picture of a Roman soldier who had a big piece of armor that went over their chest to protect their vital organs uh, in the heat of battle, right? That's the idea that Paul has in mind. And what he says for us is that chest plate is a chest plate of righteousness, And so I think it's important for us to get that, that as believers, the righteousness we wear, the righteousness that we are protected by is the very righteousness of Jesus. Jesus had in himself through his perfect life and perfect obedience, a perfect righteousness that we never could have earned. And yet he has freely given to us by grace through faith. And so those of us who turn from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, we are given this righteousness to be covered in. And this is what God sees when he sees us. He sees that we are covered in the perfect righteousness of his son. But maybe just as important in the world of defending ourselves against the attack of the enemy, it's not just the gifted righteousness of Jesus, but is the practical righteousness that we live and grow in every day as believers. Okay, so, so here's the thing. We can't confuse these two. There is a gifted righteousness that Jesus earned through his perfect life and obedience, and he gives that righteousness to us by grace through faith. And then there is the practical righteousness of holy living that we grow in after we are saved. The gifted righteousness of Christ secures our salvation. The practical righteousness we live out is evidence of our salvation. We can't confuse the two. Both are important, but they're very different. But here's why that practical righteousness can be very important in our defense against attacks in spiritual warfare. It's because the life that we live either fortifies us against attacks and temptations or the life that we live makes it easier for the enemy to defeat us. When Satan accuses the Christian, it is the righteousness of Christ that secures us of our salvation, no matter what lies the devil throws our way. But without that practical righteousness in our everyday life, what we're doing is we're just walking around open and vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy that they might more easily land. So it's two, right? We are covered in the perfect gifted righteousness of Jesus, but we must live that righteousness out practically and grow in it so that we can withstand the attacks of the enemy and he will not find places of weakness in our life. And the way that we do that, the way that we put on that uh, chest plate of righteousness is by submitting to Jesus. First, we submit to Jesus as our Savior, right? Knowing that we could not save ourselves, that our own righteousness is filthy rags, and we receive that gifted righteousness he offers. But then after that, we must continue to submit to Jesus as Lord or King over our life. We submit to his commands. We submit to his direction. We submit to his way for us to live. And that produces that practical righteousness we grow in. Got to keep moving. Move down to verse 15. He says, 
and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. And so this is the sandals of the gospel of peace. That's the next piece of the armor. But they're not really sandals, right? If you, if you look at them, you know, they, they were kind of like sandals because that's what footwear was during that day. But they were laced up high on the calf. So they almost looked like a boot, but they weren't really a boot. The point here, though, is that the shoes that the Roman soldiers would wear on their feet, uh, they would take spikes or nails and drive through the sole so that really what these things were were cleats. They were cleats that helped them grip the ground that they were fighting on. And this may be the most important piece of their armor and our own armor. And the reason why is if you look at ancient warfare before firearms got involved, most casualties in uh, ancient warfare came in retreat. Like as the line was broken and people turned to run and they would fall down, that's when they would most likely put their life at risk. But as they stood, they would be safer. And when we understand that the primary call on our lives and in the realm of spiritual warfare is to stand, this begins to make sense. As we already said, we stand in the ground that Jesus has already, has already won for us, right? We, we stand on what he has accomplished. But the gospel, but Paul calls the gospel of peace, is what tethers us to that sacred ground. It is the good news of the gospel and our understanding of it that gives us solid footing on the ground of Jesus' victory. See, I think as new believers, we're in awe of the truth of the gospel. That Jesus would take our place on our cross as a substitute bearing our punishment and through his resurrection bring us new life. But as the years go by, our all can and, and often does slowly fade. It's not that we are ignorant of the gospel, it's just that it ceases to move us or amaze us as it once did. And I think that is where the enemy finds room for attack in our life. You see, we don't ever, no matter how long you've been a Christian, we don't ever move beyond the gospel. We move deeper into it. We move deeper in to what it means for Jesus to bear our sin on our cross. We move deeper into what it means that he would give us new life by his life. We move deeper into the gospel. And as we move deeper into it, our cleats dig deeper into the ground. They hold steady in spite of the storm. I think the way that we ready our feet, that's what Paul says, ready your feet. The way that we ready our feet for the gospel is, is remembering. Remembering is one of the most important things that we can do as a believer. Remember who you were. Remember what Jesus has done. Remember what he has promised. And one of the best ways to remember is remembering through daily habits of grace. And we talked about this in our last series. If you haven't seen it, you should go back and check it out. But that there are daily habits of grace that we can build into our life that every single day, every single morning through prayer, through the word, in silence and worship, we remember the goodness of the gospel. And then we preach that gospel to ourselves. 
If I'm the only one preaching to you this week, you're probably going to be an easy target for the enemy. But we have got to preach the truth of the gospel in, uh, to ourselves so that our cleats would dig deep into the ground and enable us to stand. And then finally, verse 16, he says, And in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So here, the shield of faith. The shield for the Roman soldier was really a complex piece of armor. The shield was also called a scutum, was a soldier's primary defensive weapon. It was made of wood, might be covered with leather or canvas, even sometimes metal, and therefore it could be doused in water to extinguish the fiery arrows that the enemy uh, would shoot. It would be used to catch, deflect, and, and douse those arrows. So what Paul is telling us is that our shield is faith, and as believers, we are shielded and we are covered by our saving faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. It is that saving faith that frees us from the clutches of the enemy and binds us for eternity with Jesus himself. But more than that, we are shielded from the active attacks of the enemy through active faith in Jesus. Not just a saving faith that freed us from sin and made us his, but an active faith that intentionally places our trust in his promises, his power, and in his plans. It's a faith that we put into work daily when the attacks come. When Satan launches his arrow of doubt, his arrow of fear, his arrow of temptation, we deflect everyone as we intentionally choose to trust in who God is and what he has said when we choose to act on faith, not just our feelings. So yes, it is a once for all faith that save us, but it is an act of faith that refutes and uh, deflects the attacks of the enemy. And make no mistake, this is not about the size or amount of our faith, right? It's not about having a big faith that can withstand the attack or a small faith that might crumble. It's not about the size of faith, but it's about the object of our faith. Who will we choose to trust when the enemy bears down? Do we trust in ourselves? Do we trust in our own understanding? Do we trust in what we think is best or what the world says is best or what the enemy whispers in our ear is best? Or do we trust in who God is and what he's done? Do we trust in his best? It is that act of faith that deflects those attacks. And the only way we put that on is by daily choosing to trust him. But I think that there is... Another element here, which is really true of all the armor, everything that we've talked about, but it's especially seen in our understanding of that Roman shield. See, uh, historically, there were two types of Roman shields. Uh, one was a, a parma. It was a smaller shield, circular. Think Captain America, right? That kind of shield. And it was primarily, primarily used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But the larger one, as we said, was called the scutum. And that's what Paul was talking about here. In fact, we know that's what he was talking about here, not the other, because the word translated shield in verse 16 is literally the word for a door. And it wasn't 
used as a word for shield because of its function, not that it's a, a shield that functions like a door. That doesn't make sense. It was the word for door because the scutum was the size and shape of a door. The way the scutum was used, it, it makes sense, right? This shield was much larger in size. It was about four feet tall, about two feet wide. It was heavy, maybe even up to 20 pounds. But this was not a shield that was used individually in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. This was a shield used in formation with a group of soldiers. This shield wasn't just an individual shield. This shield was part of a shield wall made to interlock together. And you've seen that, right? When the Roman soldiers would come and they would put their shields down and it would form a wall. And then the row behind them would come and put their shields over the top, turning the army into one giant shield. That's what Paul has in mind. Why does that matter? Why is it so important? Because when we stand, we stand together. That's the call Paul is making here in Romans chapter 6. When we stand, we stand together. This is not the armor of the individual Christian. This is the armor of the church. As a matter of fact, if you go look at every one of these verses from Romans 6.10 uh, down to 6.20, every time he says you, it is a plural you, not a singular you. Even beyond that, he never says your enemy. He says our enemy. Why? Because this is not the fight of the individual Christian. This is the fight of the church. We are in this together. You are not in the fight alone. And you may feel that way. You may feel beat up. You may feel run down. You may feel constantly bombarded and overwhelmed. And that's probably because you're trying to fight alone but you're not in the fight alone. We fight together. We stand together or we fall alone. So I want to encourage you, get plugged in. Find a local church. If it's here, if it's somewhere else, find a body of believers that you can fight with. Because this isn't just your fight, then just my fight. This is our fight. This is our stand. And as the church, we stand together. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that you would help us to find brothers and sisters that we can link arms with so that when the enemy comes and when he bears down, that we can stand. And so God, I pray now that you would take your word by your spirit, use it in our lives to change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.